everybody and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars. I'm Randy Cardoon. Everybody has a car story. Frank Holly today runs a drag racing school that started small but now boasts of an alumni that is a who's who of NHRA drivers. Where did Frank Holly's car story start? I was born in Ontario, Canada and uh, drag racing back in, uh, in, the, in the 50s and 60s was just huge. I actually went to my first car race when I was nine years old and I had four older sisters, they all had boyfriends, and they all had muscle cars and they ended up introducing me to uh, really cool fast cars and the drag races and when I first went, uh, the first day I ever saw uh, a drag race was two front motor top fuel cars with flames and smoke and and I, I thought that that's I have to do this for a living. I don't know how you do this for a living, but somehow this is going to be what I want to do for the rest of my life. And uh, went to school to be an architect. Uh, never worked at it a day in my life. Uh, stayed interested in cars. So when we first started, uh, it cost about three dollars to get into the drag races. And my my parents, you know, were we're not uh, wealthy people at all. And my mom would uh, take me to the local drag strip, pack me a peanut butter sandwich. Uh, give me three dollars and uh, she couldn't come in because she couldn't afford another three dollars for her to get in and she would drop me off at uh, 10 or 11 years old at the local drag strip and um, and I would hang out and she'd say you be back at this gate at five o'clock or you're not going again uh, and today that would be child abuse but uh, it was a different era a different time and she thought hey he's out there with a bunch of race car guys and uh, what could possibly go wrong so I, I was out there uh, at the drag strip and as I grew up uh, we got to know all the local racers and when I turned 16 uh, my dad uh, borrowed some money on the house actually and we bought our first race car and it was a disaster uh, it was an old front motor dragster and and uh, we were mostly on fire all the time and blowing up now was your family did it have a race background or i mean were they just doing this because that was something you were interested in no they they just did it because i was interested and that's one of the things as as you go around the, the industry now and talk and we want we want to try and see what we can do to develop some first generation interest in the sport because uh, you know it could be very vertical sometimes where you're interested because the parents are but that isn't what it was like when I was young there were a lot of people getting involved in motorsports where their parents actually almost didn't like cars you know because there's wild and crazy kids out there squealing the tires and uh, and and I think that that's something we want to try and focus on now in the industry is uh, hey, let's get some some new people let's get some young people out here uh, let, let them see you know what a cool thing this is and and uh, and develop some some new interests so I was I was just a, a good time period in history uh, good family, um, a lot of good influences. Take a step back to what you had talked about earlier, and you were talking about the muscle cars your f sister's boyfriends had. What, what, what kind of cars are we talking about? So I've got a, a few dream cars, and, and one's a, 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 that kind of dark olive green uh, a Nova with a 396, 375 horse, and I want the, the green steel wheels and the little hubcaps, and, and uh, you know, there, there were... You know, they had road runners, and I remember my dad in 68 uh, was, was going to buy one of his first ever new cars, and he bought a 68 Plymouth Satellite with a 318, and um, we, I actually was pushing him really hard for the road runner, and we actually took it on a test drive. I said, Dad, you have to have this one. And, uh, but you know, it costs like a thousand dollars more. And you know, I mean, my God, who would have paid $4,000 for a, a, a brand new 68 Roadrunner? 
If we only knew. <laughs> we only knew. I, I grew up really supported well. Uh, we, we, I never had uh, a car to drive on the street because people say, but did you ever street race or anything? I said, actually, no, because when um, we couldn't afford a car for me to drive on the street. And I had three front motor dragsters that I raced before I ever had a car because uh, I just drive my dad's Plymouth when I had to. And we did, we borrowed a pickup truck. And it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was really a tough time. <laughs> so if I understand this correctly, you had three front-engined dragsters at what age? Uh, well, we, we had to get one each year because they kept changing the chassis rules and it wasn't legal for the next year. So we didn't really want to have that many cars. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, I started racing when I was 16 years old. Um, and... Uh, th th things have changed a lot, but what I just love getting back out here, seeing all the guys that, that I kind of grew up with and, and a lot of the nostalgia racing and a lot of the, the, the muscle cars that are restored. And, and it's just, it, it's a lot of fun, brings back a lot of great memories. What car did you have in high school? Because I have a theory that a lot of guys, a lot of car guys have that car from high school. Well, uh, I never had a car in high school. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't actually because we were spending. So when, all when, when did you get your first car? Okay, so here's my first car. Uh, I actually um, had a, a summer job, and it was working at a company that uh, built cement mixers for the for the trucks. And I got a job as a welder, but I worked the night shift, so I went in at like four o'clock. I worked till two or three in the morning, and uh, I had to have a car. To, to get to work so I bought a 62 Pontiac convertible and uh, with a six-cylinder and I paid $75 for it and it had a hole right in the roof above the driver's seat the, the convertible top so when it rained it poured in on top of me the good news is that it had a matching hole on the floor where it had rusted through so the water would run right out well that's convenient yeah and, and I it came like that I didn't I didn't design that that was a feature it was with the car and uh, in the winter time uh, because you know in Canada it's pretty darn cold there was a very specific way you could start the car and it, this little six-cylinder tube and and it was uh, two pumps all the way to the floor uh, turn it once turn it off a half a pump one big pump uh, turn it on and then it would start and if you did not do that you were not going to work that day with that car so it, it, it and then that didn't come with the car I figured that out after a while oh, I thought that was just because it was a Parisienne that's what it was right well it's, yeah it, it very fancy name not such a nice but you know the really cool thing is I sold it for 75 bucks so uh, you know it was it, I was neutral on the car and got to work for a whole year wow that, that, that works out pretty well the cars you've had that you no longer have, is there one that you wish you could get back? Oh, I had a, a, a 66 uh, stepside Chevy pickup truck that had a small block in it. And uh, uh, it, it was not pristine, but it was a fun vehicle to drive. And it was a little loud, and it had smoked the tires. And, um, uh, you know, I always had a lot of fun with that truck. And uh, I, I let it go when I didn't know that I would ever want it again. And I just needed the money back, you know, back out of the truck. Uh, but that, that was one of my, my, fun, my fun vehicles. It, it, it's really kind of a contrast because when you drive nitro funny cars and top fuel dragsters for a living, uh, the fact that you need a really fast street car is not necessary. <laughs> 
you you have your fill of really fast cars on the weekend. So I, I kind of like cruisers. I like stuff that's comfortable and rides nice and it actually isn't too loud. And so my taste in in personal vehicles is is somewhat different based on, on what I've, I've done uh, uh, professionally. What do you have in your garage right now? I drive a Chevy pickup truck, a crew cab pickup truck, every day of my life. A recent one. Yes, yes, yeah, no, 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 it hasn't got holes in the roof or anything. So. I don't know if you date it back to 61 or something like that. No, and uh, so for me, it, it, it becomes, it doesn't sound very exciting, but it's really practical stuff because I, I, we, we got a dog and, and, and I, I got to move stuff. I'm always moving stuff around and, and, uh, and I like visibility. The older I get, the more I want to see. <laughs> and, and anyway, so... Um, uh, and my, my wife's got a Volkswagen station wagon, and so we're we're probably if you looked in our garage, we're not we're not very cool looking, but they're really practical vehicles, and I, I just I like all kinds of cars. You didn't have to worry about the whole diesel thing with VW. Uh, she doesn't have a diesel, uh, okay, good. <laughs> so we're we're good on that side. Good call on that one. Good call on that one. Frank, let's talk about the transition to driver to a race car school because. You've been wildly successful with yours. Uh, not many drivers or not many other people have really even, if they've tried it, it hasn't worked out to their satisfaction. How did that transition start? So back when I was still driving full time, we spent the winter out here in California because our last race was here, and the first race is here, and we uh, had some friends down in Mission Viejo. And I like all kinds of racing, I like all kinds of cars, and I actually went to the Jim Russell British School of Motor Racing at Riverside and drove Formula Fords. Absolutely loved it. Went for some lapping days, which are practice days, and then I went back and drove in a few of their uh, school races. About a year later, I thought, boy, no one has ever thought about doing a drag racing school. So at that time, there were two types of racing schools only. And one was, uh, you know, an open wheel Formula Ford school, Skip Barber, Jim Russell. Uh, the other was a Bondurant uh, where you could drive a sedan. Back then they were Mustangs. <clears throat> and um, we put a program together and we bought some cars and we started a drag racing school with no expectation that this is going to work or not work. Uh, that was 30 years ago. And half of all of the NHRA professional drivers now are graduates of ours. So it, it kind of caught on. But an interesting thing now, if you look at the, the landscape and you see all the different types of racing schools and all the NASCAR stock car schools, about a year after we started our drag racing school, I got a call one day at the office and uh, I was told it was Buck Baker on, on the phone. I said, Buck Baker, the stock car racer? He said, yeah. I said, why would Buck Baker be calling me? And he said, uh, he introduced himself and of course I knew who he was and, and uh, uh, he asked, uh, how's that school going? And I said, uh, pretty good. And he says, I'm thinking of starting a stock car school. And that was the first ever stock car overtrack NASCAR type school in the country. And he did it after watching our success with the drag racing school. And so he went uh, and started that. And then of course there's uh, numerous uh, stock car schools around the country now. So we were kind of early in on the drag race or, or the race car school business. We have lots of different programs. We have programs where you can come and drive a 200 mile per hour alcohol funny car dragster, but we also have programs that uh, for, for like $399, you can come out, we'll put you in a real dragster, runs 10 seconds at 130 miles an hour, and uh, we'll let you race somebody. 
and uh, we call it our adventure program. So over the years, we actually started with really fast cars and we went to slower cars to broaden the base and the appeal and, and the, uh, obviously the price point so somebody can come out and have some fun and, and uh, with their friends or we do a lot of corporate groups. It's, it's, it's a blast. Let me ask this, and I'm always curious, when you started, was it a smooth start, or was it? Uh, were there moments you kind of questioned your decision? Oh, absolutely. It was. It was not good. <laughs> we just. We we started with car. We started actually. This is crazy, um, with with alcohol funny cars, and uh, if if um, if you wanted to drive it, we'd let you. And that was based on the fact that I grew up driving race cars and fuel cars. I didn't know anybody that didn't drive race cars, and I thought that that was a very doable thing. And uh, it was it was a disaster. It was just it wasn't good at all. Um, but we survived a, a while, uh, a few years long enough to realize we need to get some some more user friendly cars and st and set the bar a little bit lower. And uh, so we we have uh, we've learned a lot of things over the years. But yeah, it was it was a pretty rough start. I was a little over ambitious. The kind of people that would come in and do it, I would imagine your first thought was, let's get people in here to get ready to race. We'll teach them how to participate in maybe NHRA stuff. But I'm assuming the diff the kind of people that would come to your schools changed over the years. Uh, well, well, it's varied. I mean, we get people that have never seen a drag race before and they're part of a company that says, listen, we're looking for a fun, exciting activity for a bunch of our employees and we're going to take them out and we're going to drive dragsters today. Uh, and then it ranges from that to um, the, the, the drivers uh, out here today because Tony Schumacher, and Robert Height, and all the Force girls and more than half the drivers here today started with our school. So there's a broad range of... Uh, this is fun, isn't it? This is my life, hollering all the time. And he's not wearing earplugs, ladies and gentlemen. I just wanted to pass that along. But uh, no, we, we, we get a, a really big range of folks. And it's, it's obviously very rewarding when we start out with somebody at the very beginning. Uh, uh, and, and then, um, you know, Jack Beckman, I mean, all of these guys have, have been through our school. And then you see them out here racing today and winning, potentially winning championships. And that's a lot of fun. There's got to be a special satisfaction for you when it comes to getting these guys in and seeing them do well. It's almost like you're uh, you're the teacher, they're the student, and uh, look how well they've done. Yeah, and, you know, we, we, we obviously develop a personal relationship over the years and, and stay, stay good friends and stay in touch. And... Um, uh, it, it, I, I'm pleased, I think, would be a better way to see it. It, it speaks to the success of our programs and, and the sport. You know, you've, you've had so many people go through your schools. Anybody really surprise you that they really took to it as opposed to when the, you first saw them, you thought, there's no way? Um, so here's what, what I think I've learned is over the years, early on, uh, I, I thought that I could look at you, talk to you, uh, do some sort of psychological assessment and I could point out this is a driver and that's a driver and that's not going to be a good driver and so I have no idea so I I, I I have quit prejudging what we do is you get there we give you the same training as everybody else and we watch you but I, I got over the uh, my, my now what I'm really good at is history so I'm really good at what you just did but I don't have any idea what you're getting ready to do no psychic power no crystal ball in your business no, no, not none whatsoever, but we have noticed a lot of really talented people along the way. 
Where do you find the kids? I mean, you used to drag race on city streets. That's now illegal, although I'd imagine back when you did it, it was probably illegal too. Uh, where do you find them? Yeah, well, first, it wasn't drag racing on city streets. It was street racing on city streets. That's that's a politically correct uh, uh, way. We, Touche. <laughs> we talk about that. But... Um, well, you know, obviously there's a lot of second generation influence where the kids grew up with the parents racing. And there's a lot of youth programs now. In fact, we're, we're getting ready to, to announce one next year. And uh, we want to we take the kids that have an interest in motorsports and, and, and give them an opportunity to go forward without uh, having to have just, you know, a tremendous amount of money. Because this should be something that, at least at the beginning level, it should be a very affordable thing to do. Well, you know what we need to do. I mean, they have high school football. Let's make high school drag racing. I think that's possible. Well, and they, the, the NHRA has has high school champions uh, in every NHRA division. Um, I don't know that it's it, it's at the same level as the high school football uh, team, but I could be a high school drag racing coach. I know I've seen younger kids in the younger drag race, the smaller drag racers. NHRA has a junior dragster program that you can start in, and and uh, unlike they were 15 years ago, they've turned into some pretty fast uh, junior dragsters now, and that that transitions them into faster cars. And also, you could take anything you're driving, and that's one of the neat things about drag racing, as opposed to other types of motorsports, is um, you could take the car that you go uh, to the grocery store with every day and you can uh, take it out to the drag strip on the weekend and if you're really good uh, you can you could win a race and there's not very many uh, other types of motorsports where you can do that where do you go from here i mean you've got a successful race school um, do you envision any other projects any other things that uh, would go beyond the race school um, i like to fish and I, I, I don't get to do that quite as much as, as I'd like to back in Florida. I do have a boat and I have a dog, and the three of us get along really well together. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna work at doing a little bit more of that as as uh, the time goes on. Two more questions: Who was one of your best students that you just uh, have seen shine through your school and 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 succeed out there in the big world? Um, uh, they're they're all out here today. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, without going through all the names, half half of the field drivers. But one that, that of, of note is Eric Enders, just won the, her second NHRA World Pro Stock Championship. We saw her the first time she ever came out of junior dragsters and got in, in a, a, a super comp or super gas car was at our school. We ended up taking her through licensing her in an alcohol funny car. And we have... Uh, we stayed pretty good friends over the years, and <clears throat> she's she's worked very very hard. She's a skillful driver, but she didn't always have a job driving. She worked hard to get back in the sport, and once she got an opportunity uh, with Elite Motorsports, she just did a fabulous job. She wasn't going to let go, and um, you know, so she's the current world champion. Antron Brown, um, he you know started uh, first time he ever drove a dragster was was with us. So uh, there, there's a lot of them out here, and uh, it's 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 pretty fun to see their their success. Were you in Erica's movie or your character, and if so, who played you? Uh, no, uh, that was that was I was not in her movie. But if there's a second movie, maybe I can be in there. And who would play you? Ah, uh, Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Uh, yeah, you, you look some have a sense of humor about yourself. <laughs> For the record, Danny DeVito is just five feet tall. Five feet zero. Frank, 
He's uh, 5'9". For more information on the Holly Racing School, go to frankholly.com. If you're a Mopar fan, Chrysler, Dodge, Plymouth, Imperial, DeSoto, and the like, you know Mopar Collector's Guide magazine. Its publisher and senior editor, Rob Wolf, began the magazine in 1988. I caught up with him at this year's Chrysler Performance West Spring Fling event at Woodley Park in Van Nuys. Wolf about the magazine that began with one idea then kind of veered off course into becoming one of the best car magazines out there. We uh, started with Mopar Collector's Guide because there wasn't any internet at the time and we couldn't buy any parts and we started as a parts buying guide so it really was a no-brainer. There was a Ford uh, you know, trader, there was a Corvette trader and so why wasn't there a way to get parts? And being down south, we didn't have access to the, the massive parts that were in California and Ohio and Pennsylvania. So that's really the, the impetus of it is how it all got started. Talk about the transition of how you became a parts location service to really, I would say, probably the best Mopar magazine out there right now. Not only because you do what you do with the cars, but the stories you tell. Well, it's, you know, as you know, it's all about the, the cars with the stories. I mean, that's kind of your motto, too. And, and all cars have a story. And as the Internet was coming on strong, I mean, we could see the freight train at the end of the tunnel saying, okay, we can't just do ads forever, so what are we going to do? And in being in the hobby and looking at the other magazines, they were doing a really good job on tech, and they were doing a really good job on the numbers, but they weren't really telling the stories of the cars. So it was a natural progression for us to start digging into the stories and finding out, you know, cars that were wrecked and, you know, what happened in the back seats. And, you know, all, you know they, there's always a story with a car. and But that's always a struggle, too, because I have people now come to me with really beautiful cars, and they'll be like, that's it's the most beautiful restored Challenger in the world. And it's like, yeah, okay, I agree. What do you know about it? Oh, nothing. I just bought it and had it restored. And it's like, well, I can't do anything with this. And they get mad at me because it's like, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I have to be able to tell a story or there's, my readers won't like this. And they're like, but it's the nicest car in the world. I said, that's not enough. So it's really not about the quality of the car. It's about what that what that car has been through. You know, every, you have such great stories. And for those of you who have not seen Mopar Collector's Guide magazine, you have to see it because as so many people, and, and we talk about every everybody has a car story. Every car has a car story. Generation Auto TV, who we partner with from time to time, has that motto as well. Tell me about, and if there was, was an aha moment where you were kind of trying to figure out where the direction of your magazine was going to go and you heard your first really cool story. I don't think there was an aha moment, so to speak. It was, you know, in business, you're always trying to find out, you know, how you're going to stay alive. I mean, it's, you know, you look back and those times were great, but it was like, okay, you know, how are we going to pay for the printing bill next month? So there was, you know, we've been doing this for 28 years and we, we've kind of figured out a formula, but I, don't, I can't say that I was a genius and knew it right off the bat. It just evolved and, you know, you kind of, you know, hope that your readers help you out. And, and there wasn't really a moment other than it was what I liked. And I'm a Mopar enthusiast, and I knew I wasn't getting that from the other magazines at the time. And a lot of people have followed that direction now. And, and I think there's some really good stories coming out in a, many different publications. But at the time, it was just something that I saw you know, in my life that I wanted to know more. I wanted to hear these stories. So, I mean, that's kind of how it happened. Tell me one of your first Mopar stories that really kind of caught your imagination that you could think of. I don't know about the first Mopar story, but some of the stuff that we've done, for instance, there was a Challenger that uh, belonged to a guy that was on Edmund Fitzgerald. And there's a picture of him on the ship with the Challenger sitting there on the dock. So you got to think about, okay, you know, these stories you heard as, as a kid. Well, this is an actual guy from the song that went out and never came back. 
And the story was that, that he was going to come back from that, that trip, jump in that car, and drive to California with his buddy, who was also on the ship, and make this trip they've always wanted to make. And he never made it back to the car. So when we found the car, it, it, you know, that story was with the car, but it still had, like, the Edmund Fitzgerald lighter in there. I mean, it was, you know, that's, that's a ghost there. You know, that's, you know, stuff like that just, you know, is incredible to me. Where do you guys find those stories? Those stories find us now. Um, we've been doing it long enough that people know when they find a car that's got a crazy story to it, it always comes to us. And the tricky thing is trying to vet it and figure out what's real and what's been embellished and, and how to figure it all out. And I can't say that we always get the story absolutely correct, but we follow the story that has followed the car. And then we kind of let people figure it out for themselves. you know. And, and it's just kind of neat because once we put the story out, we find a lot of original owners and a lot of people that were involved with it. And that story actually usually gets better. You know, it usually is like, no, it wasn't like this, but it was like this. Um, so the, the, the stories never end, and, and it's neat to be able to track those cars all the way back to the guys that bought them. And that's, that's the neat thing that we have the ability to do. But getting out to there to hundreds of thousands of people is, is someone knows something about that car. So if the story comes out and it's wrong, it gets vetted pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, people will sit there and read and go, wait a minute, I remember this car, this has nothing to do with this, and then right. you get suddenly the phone rings. Right, and that's a good thing because a lot of the owners have bought these things third and fourth generation, and they've heard these stories. But are they, you know, is it a wives' tale or is it real? So they're usually happy to figure it out and say, "Oh, okay, it wasn't this way, but it was this way," because the, you know, it's just another piece that goes with that car that keeps that history. And, and I think you probably touch base on this car. I, I was going through uh, the internet um, and stumbled upon the Mannix television show. <laughs> And, of course, the Mannix television show, well-known for that 68 dart of many machinations. Then there was a Barracuda after that. Is it difficult, is it easy to track down, let's say, uh, collector cars of a Mopar variety that were connected to television shows back in the day? Um, it's not difficult. They come up. You see a lot more of these out in California because cars usually stay relatively close to where they're from. Um, and we've done some stuff on the Brady Bunch cars. There's some 72 convertibles out there that are neat. Some um, Mod Squad cars were kind of neat. And they're usually so unique because they're like a 72 convertible, which never was made. So they're kind of updated from a 71. So when you find them, you kind of know what they are, and you can trace them back. There's not a lot of ways to figure out. You know, a lot of people come to us and say, okay, where's the Vanishing Point Challengers or the, you know, the... Uh, you know the bullet chargers and it's really difficult to find those cars but they generally come up and they're so unique that they kind of work their way through the system i was just thinking the nash bridges barracuda i think that was a similar thing to what you're talking about where it came out one year and then they decided to put the next year's grill on it or something like that just updated but it wasn't really updated well in that particular case there weren't a lot of 71 cudas out there they were hard to find so they're taking 70 cudas and converting them over and, and that was in an era when we were all really concerned about this but i think like with the manic stuff no one thought these cars would be worth anything they thought they were throwaway cars so it wasn't like they were pampered and kept like the like the nash bridges ones are and those are documented pretty well but uh there's really some really neat missing movie cars probably still out there that could be in someone's garage that no one even thinks about is there anyone that comes up off the top of your head i mean you know there's, there's certainly a, a bunch of them but I, i'm curious if you ever thought of one now that you mention it um there are some early um um 
Beverly Hillbillies cars. They were sponsored by Chrysler, and there was actually a 71 Challenger that Ellie Mae learned how to drive on. That I don't know where that car ever ended up. Didn't uh, didn't the secretary, Nancy Culp, Mr. Drysdale's secretary, she, she drove like a 64 uh, Polara 500 convertible or something, or maybe just a Polara convertible? It might have been a Polara. It might have been an Imperial. I'm not sure what it was, but it was always like a top-of-the-line Chrysler product, and most of them were convertibles, neat cars. I don't know where any of that stuff went, so it's got to be out there. Now, if anybody knows where those cars are, get a hold of Rob, get a hold of me, and we'll, we'll, we'll do something fun with that, because that would be really kind of neat to do. You know, Rob, you grew up in the South. Your first memory of, of uh, cars when you were growing up? Oh, my first memory of cars. Um, I, start, I, I got into cars when I was probably eight or nine, and I was going to the grocery store and buying Hot Rod Magazine. Um, and that was my interest. I didn't, you know, I played sports, but it was really cars were everything to me at that time, and I just ate it up. Um, and at that time, it was all secondhand for me because I'm getting ready to be 50. So my brothers had neat cars, and everything out there was a worn-out car in somebody's backyard down south. So my brother had a 70, well, actually it was a 69 GTO convertible, and I really wanted, I was about 12 at the time, and I wanted them to keep that car. That was what I wanted for my first car, but it got sold off. Um, and my, my family was a GM family, but for some reason I just gravitated towards Mopars. Now, what were your folks driving, do you remember? Oh, my, my folks did not care anything about cars. My mom loved cars, but Dad thought they were just transportation. So Dad always had a station wagon, a wood grain, you know, stereotypical station wagon. If the door fell off, he put a piece of plywood on it. He did not care. He did not care. So growing up in that household was not conducive to me building cars. So it was always a struggle between me and my dad. Now, he supported me, but he didn't like that old car sitting out there. What was he driving? Pontiac, Chevys? What was oh, he was a Chevy man. Yeah, he was a Chevy man. So, so was my mom. And... Um, my brother was a Pontiac guy, and, and the story on that, that it was a Judge four-speed convertible, red with a red interior, and the transmission went out in that car, and he made him bring it to the junkyard. And so that's how much he didn't like junk cars. So it was, there was a lot of incentive to keep your car running in the family. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So your first car was what? My first car was a 72 Charger, um, and that was a nothing 318 car that I... I saw what Dick Landy did in the magazine, so I drilled holes in it and lightened it and made it into a, like a kind of a street race car, cobbled it together and, and ended up, you know, being able to take most of the drivetrain out of that and, and bringing it over to a, a Challenger that I bought a body. And back then you could buy for three to six hundred bucks, you could buy anything you want and swap it around. And that's really kind of what's missing for kids today is it wasn't because the cars were, you know, I thought they were cool, but we also had the ability, financial ability to be able to buy these things and play with them, which, you know, the kids today do not have that ability. I mean, it's expensive now. Especially the cars that we grew up with with kids, you know, it's somehow it, trying to build, a, you know, an 80s Omni or something like that is just not the same. It's not the same. And I understand totally why people are getting the Hondas and doing it because they're cheap fixes. And it would have been the same thing that I would have done in the day because it was about opportunity. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, once people get into cars, they can evolve into different ones. And, you know, that's why, you know, I support that hobby, too, because that's that's the only only chance you've got for the young people to come up is to get involved with whatever's affordable for them to play with. What's in your garage right now? In my garage right now, um, I have a funky chopped A100 van that you may have seen. Yes, if you've seen the magazine and if you haven't, I, I implore you to go look at uh, back issues of uh, Mopar Collector's Guide. In fact, you had it out here one year at uh, Spring Fling. We bought that van um, from Vegas and my guys wanted to drive it back from Vegas and I was like you know my towing bill is gonna be real expensive when you break down in Arizona so we we did some some shows up at the Playboy Mansion for about five years so we sent the van up to a buddy of mine here in, in Van Nuys Ted with Picture Car Warehouse and he said okay I'll look at it for you and make sure it's ready to go home 
So, uh, you know, he kept it for a month or so and did some lettering, made it our own. And uh, my guys drove that back from California to Louisiana, uh, which is a 30-hour drive in an A100 six-inch chop van with sheet metal seats. And they made it all the way back. Uh, the, the exhaust fell off, you know, the uh, tire blew out, but they, they, they made it back unscathed and I uh, had some good stories to tell about it. So that, that's one of the, the funky ones I have that'll, that I'll keep forever because it's got good memories. And that, of course, the key word there is chopped because that's, for those of you who do not know what it is, obviously the, uh, the compartment uh, where the roof is and the body is little closer together and that must have been interesting driving for all that distance yeah i would not have wanted to do that because you got to kind of slide way down in the seat because it's a six inch chop so it's pretty serious <laughs> so you just kind of got to lay down there and roll with it now you've had so many cars you've talked about so many cars are there any cars that you've had that you no longer have that you wish you didn't get rid of or would want back no there are not when i buy cars i keep them i have more than i really should have you know in the garage give me a number Oh, I don't know, nine or ten at any one time, you know. Um, most of them running, some of them getting to that point. Um, I had a Pantera that I was building that I didn't finish. I'll own another Pantera at some point. I like those cars. Um, but, you know, I don't have that regret of getting rid of a car that I would like to have kept. The regret I have is I used to walk by a 70 Cuda red car with a hockey stick stripe when I was going to, uh, going to um, high school. And I always loved that car, but I was too shy to go ask about that car. And then one day it just disappeared. And that, that's the one car in my memory that if I could ever find that car, because that was kind of the one that sparked me to, you know, I, I really like this Mopar stuff. Uh, Rob Wolf with uh, Mopar Collector Guide Magazine. If there's any car out there that you would like that uh, you're kind of yearning for that you haven't seen yet? Yeah, absolutely. I've been searching for a 72 or 73 Cuda. And they made very few of those that actually had painted grills, and they had a blacked-out hood treatment from the factory. Um, and I want a four-speed one of those, and it has to be like petty blue or something like that, a neat color. You just never see any of those cars. And they actually had on the cover, I believe, either Motor Trend or Hot Rod in 73, they had a petty blue one of those. Um, but with that hood and, and grill treatment uh, with a four-speed would be my ultimate car to find and put back together now. Awesome. That sounds pretty great. Hey, again, if you guys haven't seen it, Mopar Collector Guide magazine, it's on newsstands. You know, I, I congratulate you. You guys are now on more newsstands. We can actually see it out here in California. That's great. Newsstands are always a problem for, for small magazines like us. You can always go to MoparCollectorsGuide.com and get it electronically, which, which everybody's doing now, which is a great way to get it. But to me, still getting a paper magazine, the feel and, and being able to turn the pages is the way to do it. So we are very lucky we have 50-year-olds in our readership because I think that will save us for the in the print world. Mopar Collectors Guides, Rob Wolf. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you're listening on iTunes, number one, subscribe. It's free and you'll automatically get notified when a new show uploads. Then rate us and write us a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us and follow us and tell your car pals and fellow club members about all the great guests and cool stories we have on all of our Talking About Cars podcasts. Also, check out the website, talkingaboutcars.net. Check out our videos as well with our partners at Generation Auto. You go to YouTube, look up Generation Auto, no space between Generation Auto when you type it in. Until next week, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. (laughs) 